Good morning. Happy Sunday. Welcome to spring. It feels like spring outside, doesn't it? Tulips are blooming in my backyard. The weather's come out. It's getting warmer again, which is good news. I took my son on a little hike yesterday. He's not quite a year old, so he's a terrible hiker, <laughs> which means I kind of like held him in my backpack. And I, I wish I'd learned this earlier, but everyone who passes you, it like congratulates you, like James, like good job, little guy. So I'm like borrowing all of these praise along the way. Like good job, little buddy. I'm like, my name's Steven. Like just by the way, just so you don't confuse it for anything else. Stealing compliments. Um, if you've joined us the last month, you'll know that we are pacing ourselves through the Lenten season. This season of preparation, preparation before Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And what we're looking to do in this period of time is engage it in a way that we, oh, that we relate with what it means when we wander away. So that when Easter comes around, we might comprehend the, the real weight of what it looks like to come home. And so today we will continue that process of reflecting on the season at hand in preparation for what we know is just around the corner, a couple weeks away, a couple weeks away. Today's passage is out of John, it's the anointing of Jesus. You're welcome to follow along with me as I read this, and then we will step a little bit further into it. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of this pure nard of expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of this perfume. But one of the disciples, Judas, which was his name like that, Judas, Iscariot, who was later to betray, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold? And the money given to the poor, it is worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, which is like a terrible comment to be made about. Uh, as keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It is intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. This is the word of the Lord. If you have, if you were raised in, a, in the Christian tradition, in, in one of these kind of streams of faith, this passage might be familiar to us. We might recognize or know a little bit about this scene in scripture. And in the words of G.K. Chesterton, the great illusion is the illusion of familiarity. In, in light of kind of that warning, I'd love us to kind of pause from jumping to conclusions about what this passage is about and allow ourselves to open up to see what's revealed, to see what might emerge afresh or anew once again. Knowing we do have 
a background with this passage. So I'm going to I'm going to lay the groundwork for kind of this scene because I think this scene is really important to understand. It's important to understand who's in this scene, where these folks just came from, what they're carrying into the room. And then we can observe kind of what actually is occurring in this space. So six days before Passover, maybe it's this direction, six days before Passover, John, as he's writing this, is telling the reader that this is the week. Right? So when we read that, we read, oh, this is the last week of his life, which carries a different weight to it. Six days before Passover. There is this, there is this anticipation of what's about to come. There's an anticipation for what is already arriving, what is slowly revealing itself. And in fact, if we took John's gospel and reviewed it, this is interesting. Over half of what he's recorded of the life of Christ is given to this last week, which is pretty interesting. And what he's, I think he's communicating is the weight and significance and value of this last week. And so when we step into this and begin to comprehend this last week, we want to also recognize the value or, or importance of what might be communicated here. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Now, Jesus and Lazarus are friends, they're pals, um, and Lazarus has not always been alive in the story. <laughs> in fact, in fact, just a few passages earlier, a chapter earlier, Lazarus is not alive, which sounds like, which sounds like bad, like daytime TV or something. Like he was dead and now he's not dead? What's happening here? What's going on here? And if we go to John 11 to get kind of a little bit of background on what Lazarus is showing up with, Jesus is away from Bethany with his disciples and he gets sick. It's COVID. He gets sick with something. And Mary, his sister, sends word to Jesus to go get him. Lazarus is sick. Come be, come here. And Jesus responds to this news that Lazarus is sick by saying, the sickness will certainly not lead to death. And then a few verses later, and then a few verses later, he says that Lazarus has fallen asleep, meaning he's entered the long good night, meaning he's no longer here. And then he communicates this to his disciples. And he says, well, I'm going to go and wake him up. And his disciples don't really understand what's happening. So they tell him not to. Like, leave him alone. He's resting. Let him get some good sleep. Let him get some sleep. And so Jesus is reminding his disciples, telling them right now in this, in this space, no, he's not asleep. He's gone. We've lost him. But I'm going to go and return him. I'm going to go and return him. And so he goes to the tomb that Lazarus has been buried in, and he calls him out, calls him forth. And Lazarus, Lazarus rises from the dead and comes out, taking off his burial clothes. And this is interesting. This is significant because they're going to a dinner party later. They're going to go to a party later. And this just happened. 
And so this te- there's a tension between, well, I imagine Lazarus and Jesus, Lazar- Lazarus and this plan <laughs> of what's going on. I, I'm, I just, the, the gospel doesn't record, exa- record what happens that night, like what they go home to talk about. But we can kind of imagine what we might be talking about. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, why are you doing this? Like, I was on my way. I was on my way. And it's not a scene. This isn't like Lazarus comes to the ER and, and then they, like, paddle him back to life. And they're like, oh, we almost lost you. What a close call. It's not that. Lazarus is dead for one, two Three, four days, <laughs> which is a long time if you're just going to bring him back. It's a long time to let, like, friends and family go through a grieving process before you welcome him in, back in the story. I imagine Lazarus is carrying some of that frustration with him. And not to mention that he has to die again. <laughs> like, not to mention the fact that he's done that job. And now he has to do it again. But these two are friends. And Lazarus is devoted to Jesus. And so we see that when he comes to this dinner, we'll we'll, we'll see kind of what he brings into the scene as he approaches dinner later that night. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. And it's given in Jesus' honor, and it's likely we could just um, suppose that we're, what we're doing in that dinner is we're celebrating what he just did. We're celebrating Jesus' resurrection of Lazarus. Okay? But the, interest, the, the part that we should keep in mind is that it's, this is six days before the Passover. And so Jesus is showing up to a dinner party, and it's Jesus, with an idea of where this week's going. And it's not a good one. Like, I get, I get angsty knowing, like, I have something coming on Friday. Like, if I have a midterm or something, like, in my, when I'm younger, or, or like, a fine, I'm going to, like, get angsty all week just over, like, that thing. Jesus is carrying in the back of his head that understanding. This is it. This is where this is going. I know where we're progressing toward. And the way that we see it kind of emerge, the, that emotion emerge in the Garden of Gethsemane is, is, well, he puts it this way. Jesus says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. In anticipation for that thing. Luke records it this way. As si- is saying that he is in such anguish. Being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. He's overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, and he's going through some terrible anguish, and yet, and yet, he doesn't, he doesn't, give that to his community to figure out and hold in that moment. He goes to the dinner party, and he doesn't, he frees them of it. It's rather unconscientious. Like, oh, 
want to burden my friends with this that I'm carrying around. I don't want to burden my friends with this that they're carrying around. That's kind of how Jesus is arriving in the room. Martha, Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Now, Martha, Martha serves as Martha serves. That's what Martha does. You turn Martha on and she serves. Like, that's how she operates. And Martha often gets a bad rap when we're talking about her. Martha, Martha, Martha. Why can't you be more like Mary? Right? I've got siblings. That's like a bad thing to be. Why can't you be more like your siblings? It's like, oh, come on. Like, we're always comparing Martha to Mary. Mary to Martha. I think kind of like we compare chess and checkers. And we're like, oh, this isn't checkers. This is chess or something. Like, we, we, like, there's fl- like we're always beating up on Mr. Checkers. Like, me, he did something wrong. And he's always got the focus of our, like, criticism. Oh, Mr. Che- Mr. Checkers didn't do anything wrong. He plays his own game. He has his own rules. As, do's, as does chess. Okay? Martha and Mary are playing the game of life based on different rules. We might call them values. Different values. And what Martha values is service. Noble. She values hospitality. And if you've ever been to someone's home who's like exceptional at hosting, you feel it when you walk in the door. You're kind of like, this night isn't going to be long enough, and I don't know when we've stopped. Like I, that's the sense you get. I have I have a mentor in life, and. Every time I get to his house, this is true. His wife will pull out like a small charcuterie board and then open champagne, and they do this nightly. And they pour a small flute of champagne, and they just celebrate their story, their life. And every care you bring into that home feels like it's taken care of. Without them wanting, like directly taking care of or solving something for you, that's what a good host does. And so this is what Martha does, and in this scene, we can imagine her doing this. She's filling everybody's wine glass before they notice, right? She's she's kind of researched what everyone wants to eat and figured it out, and is like pr- like baking it or or cooking it all day. So that when you show up, you recognize the scent. You're like, wow. You feel at home. That's what a good host does. Helps you feel at home. This is her values. This is what she does. She's, in some sense, like, found the right mood lighting. Like, she's like, this is going to be perfect for what we're trying to do. She's thought of everything. She's made the best playlist. She's thought of everything. She's taking care of the details so that you wouldn't have to. Because I think Martha sees this night in thankfulness and gratitude. She's thankful for the opportunity. She's grateful for the experience. 
And I think everyone else is really thankful to have her there, taking care of them. So Martha's showing up, not in this kind of pent-up way that sometimes we imagine her in, but in service, in this, in this noble posture of how can I help you just settle a little bit further into your seat? She's grateful. Then Mary. Then Mary took a pint of Purinard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of this perfume. This is often where we linger. This is often where we, we talk about the cost of the perfume. And how it's this, you know, it could have, could have been a, a year's salary of the perfume. And then we start to compare or, or evaluate or judge in some sense of like, is my, is my gift to God like that? And sometimes we can get in that space. And, I, and that's a fine space to live in. It's an extreme gift. It's not a simple thing. But it's likely that this perfume was kept around as a investment of some kind. Like that's the value of it. And Mary behaves in this real humble way. It's a real humble expression. You know, it wasn't uncommon to anoint your guests when you got to, to the home, but it was uncommon to pour it all over their feet. And in what's, what Mary's communicating in these actions is in, is in a sense, the most expensive thing in the world is none too expensive for the feet of Christ. So she's communicating in this event. And then she unbinds her hair. She begins to wipe his feet, which is really unheard of. And culturally speaking, would have been frowned upon. I guess it was an indication of loose morals, is what I've heard her saying. So it would have been like a, a, an attack on her reputation. Which I think is what this passage is truly about. I think Mary is operating in a way that is unselfconscious. That's not aware of or filtering things through kind of the optics of the situation. What are people going to think? How are people going to understand this? What are they going to say about me? She just acts. She's compelled to do something and she acts. And we're going to come back to this because I think this is, I think when, when, when John records the scent in the home, I think he's actually speaking to something else. the disciples Judas Iscariot who was later to betray him objected why was this perfume sold not sold and the money given to the poor it was worth a year's wages he did not say this because he cared about the poor but because he was a thief his keeper of the money bag he helped himself to that money bag and this objection kind of follows Mary's uh, extreme act of 
generosity. So there's kind of this contrast that we just recognize. There's kind of this contrast that we recognize. But Judas is, is a showing up, and the way he's interacting with this is, is kind of in a like self-indulgent way, in a greedy way, in a greedy way. He's confused by this event. He doesn't understand it. Now, we could presume that none of the, the disciples really knew what Ju- Judas was doing when he was kind of like, a little bit for you and a little bit for me. We, we, we can presume that the disciples didn't necessarily know he was doing that. Um, it's also likely, it's possible that Jesus knew that he was up to that. And he still appointed him like the treasurer. Which is just interesting. We should probably talk about that sometime. That's just interesting. Okay? But he's hiding. He's hidden who, who he is from his friends. He's trying to disguise who he is. He's showing up under a facade. And when you're hiding, it's kind of what John's recording in this passage. When you, when you live so long in a posture of hiding, then an act of unrestrained love like what Mary does looks unfathomable looks foolish. It's really confusing. It's really confusing. And so Judas is confused by this. He doesn't have some way to interpret it. He doesn't have somewhere in his being to go. Leave her alone, Jesus says. Jesus replied. It is intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you. You will not always have me. So this is the scene of this dinner party. These are some of the players in the room and their emotional state that they're showing up with. Mary has an emotional state that she's arriving with. Martha, Lazarus, Judas, Jesus, they're all arriving with a state. They're bringing something with them into the room. And I would love for us to kind of return to a phrase in this passage and linger there and see maybe what might emerge. But in order to do that, we need to talk about exegesis. And exegesis is simply like the careful interpretation, like a caring interpretation of a text or of a scripture or of a passage. And in, in, in Jewish theology, in, in, in Jewish exegesis, there's kind of four layers of understanding the meaning of something. There's the literal, the allegorical, the metaphorical, and then the mystical. So if we were to think about like the flood account, like Noah's ark and the flood account, a literal translation may interpret like the 40 days and 40 nights that it rained as 40 days and 40 nights. It took that long. But in an allegorical interpretation, you might see the number 40 and see that it's actually suggestive of, which is what an allegory does. It hints at something a little bit deeper. It's suggestive of completeness. So did it take exactly 40 days, 40 nights? I don't, but it was a complete amount of time. Would be kind of an allegorical interpretation of this. If we were to think about the, if we were to think about the meta- metaphorical interpretation of this, 
I mean, this is kind of, we have time for this. Let me bring it to Shaft. A cup, this is, this is in younger years. I was in an undergrad program, and after this class, I had to, like, understand who this guy was. His name was Richard. And um, I went up and introduced myself and said, are you Stephen Milburn? Which is not a comfortable place. You're kind of like, what happened? Like, do I owe you money? <laughs> Something. You're kind of like, you, you, you don't know. I don't know. I don't want strangers knowing who I am. <laughs> I think that's uncomfortable. Um, and he says, no, I baptized you when you were an infant. I thought, oh, my God. Like, what are we? What's your name? You know, it's good to meet you. Dr. Richard Bledsoe. I mean, he has this, like, chin strap of a beard, if you ever see him. You'll be like, there he is. I know him. And then you can go say, I know him. Um, and he talked about in his classroom, and this is just what he's talking about. But he sees kind of the flood account as a global baptism. Okay? That'd be like a metaphorical interpretation of what's happening. And then there's a mystical I don't know if this layers, I don't know if it goes this way or if it's concentric, but then there's a mystical interpretation of this scene, of the passage of the text. And it's waiting for something hidden to be revealed. It's, it's something that is unknown and then is known. And it's not something that necessarily we deduce. It's something that kind of occurs to us. I think of it as like a magic eye. It's where I'm like staring at this paper for a while and nothing's happening. And I'll tell my friends, oh, I see it, I see it. And I don't actually see anything. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, it like pops out. We see it. It's kind of like that. It's kind of like something that happens to us. I think of it as almost the difference between how I think, I, I consider meditation and contemplation. Like meditation is kind of this practice, this thing that we can do. We can place ourselves in an environment or in a situation and pray and, res and recite scripture or do a breath prayer or a Lexio exercise or something. We can, do, we can enter into a meditative state, but contemplation isn't something I do. It's something that happens to me while I'm in that space. And it's kind of like that. That's kind of like a mystical interpretation. It's not that I'm looking at this passage and I'm determining what this thing says. It's that the passage is alive and it's revealed something to me. Which is exciting. Which I think is what we're talking about when we say that scripture is alive. Which is exciting. Now, if we were to review kind of verse 3 together. This is, this is the scene of Mary. Mary enters stage left. Then Mary, then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. fragrance of this perfume. And the fact that John is recording this makes us think, oh, he remembers the scent. As he's kind of, I don't know, maybe he's on his laptop. He's, as he's writing this, he's remembering the scent. 
that permeated the space. It filled all the corners of the room. It saturated the upholstery. Which is interesting. And the way that Mark, this is fun, the way that Mark talks about this event in his gospel, after Jesus defends Mary, hey, leave her alone. Mark records Jesus saying this. I tell you the truth. Wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, wherever the gospel is preached, what this woman has done will also be told in memory of her. It's exciting if you're her, I think. But to be clear, what he's not saying is, hey, when you go share the gospel, now you got to share this story about Mary with this anointing of this healing. He's not saying that. like an asterisk to the story, postscripts. What he is saying is whenever you share the gospel, it is going to look a lot like, it's going to feel a lot like, it's going to taste a lot like, it's going to smell a lot like this. Perfume. This fragrance that has saturated the space. And so we ask, we, the, the, a question we might ask is, in a metaphorical sense, what fragrance is that? What is the fragrance that her actions are producing that fill every corner of this room? And that is consistent with the gospel message. Because wherever you share the gospel, that's going to be true. And so when we look at how, Ma how Mary's shown up in this passage and how sh she's, she's behaved, what we see is that she's acting in freedom, in liberation, in an unrestrained love for Jesus. And out of that activity comes this fragrance, comes this aroma of her story. See, I think, this, I think this passage can be understood in this metaphorical sense of the fragrances that we are all kind of omitting in life. 2 Corinthians 2 talks about it this way. This is fun. God leads us from place to place, one perpetual victory parade. Through us, he brings knowledge of Christ. Everywhere we go, people breathe in the exquisite fragrance. Because of Christ, we give off a sweet scent rising to God. And it's recognized by those on the way to salvation as an aroma redolent with life. What Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians is that there is a fragrance, an aroma, that the actions of our life produce in the world. And if we were to look at this scene, what we can see is that, is that Martha is producing a fragrance of hospitality, of service, of warmth, of care, of attention. That's beautiful. That's what she's contributing. 
And Lazarus is showing up with a fragrance, and he's expressing, he's sharing, he's omitting, he's producing this fragrance of friendship, of devotion, of affection, of where else am I going to go? You are. You are the word of life. We're his friends. He just raised him from the dead and must have caused, caused some tension in their relationship. He's devoted to. And we see Mary acting in a way of free, liberated, and unrestrained love. That's the perfume that is, 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 is omitted from her actions and behavior. And I think the reality is this. I think we're all, I think we're all omitting an odor. <laughs> You know, some sweeter than others. I think this is true. I think we're all omitting, producing a fragrance in the world based on the actions of our life. And I think what we're invited to consider in this passage, in this period of Lent and in preparation for Easter, is in what is is less, do I have an odor? Do I have a fragrance? You do. <laughs> uh, I think the question is rather, what fragrance do I produce with the actions of my life? Because that fragrance is whatever I'm anointing Jesus with. That fragrance is what I'm contributing to him, what I'm bringing him. You could think about it in the sense of like, we all got in this room, but... But it's like if we were to stay in this room, we're going to like fill this room up with something. Or my home, when you think of your home. Like my home's filling up with, some, with, a, with my fragment of some kind. It's going to fill up in all the corners of some kind. That's not the question. The wonder in the room is, what's it smell like? Is it a sweet aroma? Or something else? What fragrance are the actions of my life producing? And that's the question we get to enter into this week. Would you pray with me? Holy Trinity, thank you. Thank you, thank you. Thank you for all that you are up to in us and around us. Thank you for well, guiding this story and orienting us in precisely the right ways. I pray that um, this week we may reflect on the actions of our life, that we may consider what fragrance the actions of our life are producing, and that we may, that we may love the aroma that we are anointing you with. We pray this in your son's holy and precious, precious name. Amen.